The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So let me start today with two questions. First of all, do you really want to know who God is? And second of all, or do you want to decide who he is? See, for the past four weeks now, we've been in this teaching series here at CRC, exploring the end of this phrase, God is. But how could we accurately describe God? How is that even possible? Isn't God a being beyond all understanding? Isn't he too marvelous for words? Isn't God the greatest of all the great mysteries? But we've persisted in this teaching series nonetheless, believing even though, that even though God is far beyond our complete grasp, that he has nonetheless chosen to reveal himself to us. And we've even kind of added this tagline to a ser- our s- series. God is not what you think. God is not what you think. Almost as if one of the fundamental premises of exploring faith in God and learning about his true nature is that you'll have to accept the fact that God will surprise you. Not that God will jump around from behind a corner sometime when you're walking down the hallway and scare you, but that God will surprise you because as the more and more that you explore faith, the more you will see what he has revealed about himself. You may find out that there is a big difference between who you thought God was and who God really is. Now, sometimes that's a great thing. Maybe you thought God was cold, he was indifferent, he was aloof, kind of sitting up there on a cloud and he didn't care about you. But then you find out, no, no, he's passionate about building a meaningful relationship with you and that changes everything for you. That starts you on a new path in life that just doesn't make life, you know, doesn't just make life make more sense. It brings a whole lot more joy into life. But see, other times when God surprises us, it's not so great an experience for us. You know, we, we learn something about God, and then inwardly there's this knee-jerk reaction. That's not the God I know. That's not the God I serve, is it? Or perhaps more honestly, that's not the God I wanted to know and serve. And it's interesting to see how people handle it when they are exploring God and they find out the God that they are learning about is different from the God they hoped to find. Because see, for some people, that difference that they find, that is enough for them to reject God entirely. Now, that's a pretty bold position, if you think about it. I mean, I, as a human, I design in my mind what God, a being far beyond humanity, I design what God should look like. And when I get it wrong, I mean, shouldn't I expect to get it at least a little bit wrong? I reject God for not looking like my creation? Hmm. It's bold, but it happens. But when it happens, I think it often happens subtly. I don't think the average person that wants to reject God says, God, I've learned you. I've figured out who you are. 
And let me tell you, I don't like it, and I'm not going to serve you anymore. Goodbye. I don't think it's quite that way. I think what happens is people find out something different, something that challenges them, something they're not comfortable with, and then they just decide they're going to quit seeking a God that they don't really want to know. And whatever faith they've built until then just kind of gets put in the background and it withers and fades away. Yeah, maybe sure, in the backs of their minds, they still believe there could be a God, but they just haven't found one that meets their expectations yet. So it's best not to waste the time. I mean, rejecting God is a bold move, but I don't think it usually happens in a bold way. I think it just happens. So that's one way people deal with this, but another common way that people respond to this unexpected God that they willingly, this unexpected God is that they willingly choose to just ignore parts of God that they don't like. I mean, they press on with faith. They press on with exploring this relationship with God, sort of, but, but they reject only the parts that just don't fit their model. Some, you know, some of you maybe have seen this. Some people find really creative ways to interpret what the Bible has to say. Love your neighbor? Oh, well, it doesn't mean that neighbor, you know. Uh, others will just blame the Bible entirely. They'll say, well, the writers of the Bible just got it mostly right, so most of that stuff is good. They just, you know, they made some errors here and there, and it doesn't really tell us about the character of the real God. So God's definitely real. He's just, he's just different than what the Scriptures say. But interestingly enough, though, interestingly enough, if I fall in this group, the scriptures are only wrong in the places where I'm uncomfortable with them for some reason. So still others, though, others that want to take part of God and leave another part somewhere else, they look like, well, they look like you and me. They just look like normal, everyday, church-going Christians. I mean, they'll tell you they believe everything the Bible has to say. But in reality, there are certain passages of the Bible, certain passages they will never allow to speak to them. How can they do that? How can you say, I believe everything the Bible says about life and about God, and, and then you just ignore several key points and critical teachings, and, you know, I don't know how you can do it. I just know it's done all the time. When people learn something about God's character they aren't really wanting to learn, some reject them altogether. And some try to have it both ways, continuing to pursue God while ignoring the full reality of who he is. And then in the rare case, others will allow God to actually speak for himself. And they will adjust their lives and they will adjust their understanding accordingly. Perhaps God is the best one to tell me who God is. And so these two questions really matter. Do you really want to know who God is? Or do you want to decide who he is? Today, I want to implore you that we need to deal with the God who is. The God who really is, nothing less. I believe a growing number of people in our culture especially are pursuing a God of their own liking, a customized God who only really exists up here in their minds. And in the end, such a God cannot save. But why? Why would people do that? What is it about the God of the Bible that people just don't want to accept? Well, first off, 
we have to back up a little. You have to admit that most people don't really even encounter really fully the God of the Bible as such. They primarily encounter learning about God through other people who claim to know him, but not necessarily through letting God speak for himself. I mean, most people will make a decision on whether or not they will follow Jesus Christ before they have ever read a substantial portion of Scripture. Now, if you call yourself a Christian today, think of how important that makes your role in sharing Christ with others. I mean, the Bible can do a great job of explaining who Jesus is, but most people won't care about what's in the Bible unless they like what's in you. Anyway, that was a little bit of a sidebar there, but the implication here is that the first and foremost reason that people are offended by God is that those of us who call ourselves Christians, well, we've, we've misrepresented him. They're really not unaccepting of God, but they won't even consider him because they've seen something they don't like in God's people. That's probably the number one drawback people have with God is his people. But aside from that, Aside from that, there are still some huge issues that people, including many Christians themselves, have with God. And these issues aren't just some misrepresentations made by some careless humans. These are the real deal. These are a clash between who we want God to be and who he actually is. And in that case, either someone's got to give or someone's going to give up on building a relationship with the real God told about in the scriptures. Today, I want to talk to you about these two stumbling blocks that we face in building a real relationship with a real God. I'm going to give you two reasons why so many people have left the real God behind in favor of serving a God of their own making. And let's jump right into it. First of all, we want a God to be loved, but not a God to be feared. I still remember the phone call I received, even though it was about 18 years ago. Not too many phone calls I remember that long ago. But I was in high school, and I picked up the phone at home to hear the voice of a friend of mine. She was in tears. But not for any of the usual reasons a high school girl might be in tears. I mean, this wasn't about a boy. It wasn't about a betrayal or some science project that had to be done before tomorrow. It was about God. She was a fellow student who I normally spoke with on a daily basis. So if this was just some mere trivia question that she wanted to ask me, I'm sure it could have waited until the next day. But to her, it wasn't trivia. This was a crisis. I listened as she told me in tears that she could just not understand how she could be expected to both love God and fear him at the same time. It had to be one or the other. How could fear be good? Shouldn't it just be about love? And this problem was ripping her up inside. I offered her my best explanation at the time of what it meant to fear God, that it was, it was something like a deep respect, some way of acknowledging who God really is, but I don't know that it did her much good before we said goodbye. I couldn't take away what seemed to be like this impossible situation from her because, see, she wasn't dealing with an irrational problem. 
she was dealing with this real stuff, this real notion that God is a God to be both feared and loved, and just one of the two will never be enough. And although that phone call was definitely unique, I mean, since then, I don't think I've had any other phone calls just wailing about how it is possible to love and fear God at the same time. I still have seen the same dynamic take shape over and over again in people's lives. Because, see, it's easy to get on board with love, or at least a very rudimentary understanding of it. I mean, it sounds good. It, it feels good when it's returned. We've been taught that love is the highest good. So when Jesus comes right out and says it for you, he says, let me make it simple for you. Love. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself and you've got it covered. These are the greatest commandments. Well, that feels good. Maybe it's a tall order, sure. I'm not saying it's easy, but it sounds right. It sounds doable. And it might even feel good once you get in the midst of doing that. But fear? What good is there in fear? Isn't fear not a good thing? Isn't it the enemy's tool? I mean, I thought this was widely agreed upon. This is, this is something we all agree upon. The voices of our culture would agree. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously stated that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear is the enemy. And not only is it the enemy, but it is seen as a tool of the enemy. I mean, if you've seen Star Wars, you know what Yoda's got to say about it. Fear is the path to the dark side. It's not something good guys would use, right? Love. Love? That sounds great. Fear? No thanks. So it's understandable. It's understandable that to us, the idea of fear poses a challenge to us. And yet the Bible is not shy in commanding it. In fact, if you go online to one of those websites where you can search the Bible, and you do a search for the words fear of the Lord or fear God, you will find dozens and dozens of passages that instruct God's people to fear him. And you'll find dozens more that use that term, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. They use it, and they use it as a good thing. They're like, this is good. These people have the fear of the Lord, and that goes well with them. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, you'll even see fear and love together in one place. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 say, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Now, we can take a little side trip here on definitions because it is important to understand that there are different nuances. There are different meanings to that word fear. Fear really can be seen as bad or good, and we don't want to say that they're all the same. On the bad side, fear is dread. It's this feeling of being terrorized. It's this anticipation of terrible things happening. But on the good side, however, it is something more of a reverence or an awe for something or someone, a deep respect for the potential power and danger they possess. 
This good side of fear is, of course, the kind of fear that the Bible is talking about when it talks about fearing God. And so I've kind of put together my own, what I would say is a biblical definition of fear, fearing God. To fear God is to afford him the reverence and awe due by his power and authority. To fear God is to afford him the reverence and awe due by his power and authority. Oh, okay, so reverence and awe. Well, that's not too bad. I could throw in a little reverence here, maybe a little bit of awe over there, mix it up with some respect on the flip side. Bam! Fearing God, check. No big deal, right? Ah, but it is a big deal. Because see, fearing God is not just giving him a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not just telling me God likes reverence. God likes awe. Make sure to include that in your Christmas card. It's giving him the level of reverence and awe actually due by who he is. Anyone ever seen the movie Jurassic Park? I have to ask the question. A couple of you, the youngest people in here. Uh, I have to ask the question because, you know, it came out in 93. I can't believe it. 21 years ago. I mean, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. I saw it twice in the theater. Um, but anyway, you probably know the story, at least, right? It's about this billionaire investor who learns how to clone dinosaurs and builds a theme park full of live dinosaurs that people can see uh, on these driving tours. Uh, the theme park designers, they claim to have a healthy fear about the dangers that living dinosaurs would present to potential visitors. And so, because of this healthy fear they have, they install high-voltage wires to keep the animals in their enclosures. They have computer monitoring systems, etc. But what they failed to do in this story was afford the danger these animals presented the actual level of reverence and awe that they were appropriately due. And so their good fear turns into bad fear when they realize that all of their safety measures actually underestimated the real danger. And then, of course, dinosaurs break out and start eating people. This is a good movie. <laughs> so what does fearing God look like? What is the level he's due? What does that look like? I mean, well, he's at God level. It's the highest possible level imaginable, right? You know, for me, it's helpful to think of, when I think about the fear of God, and what would God be do if we really knew who he was, if we really understood what it would be like to encounter him in a personal way. I think about this story from the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. We won't read the whole story, so I want you to read it on your own this week if you can, but I'll summarize it for you. This is a story of when the nation of Israel, God brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and this is their first meeting with the God who rescued them. And it says this, it says they all arrived at Mount Sinai to meet with God and they first start with two full days of purification. They're gonna just make themselves ready to meet with God. And then on the third day, God shows up at the mountain. The mountain gets covered with a thick cloud and lightning and thunder ensue. A trumpet blast sounds, but is not blown by a human. It's this sound that, gets, that starts sounding, but then continues and continues and continues and grows louder and louder and louder. God sends down fire from heaven 
and the mountain looks like a giant furnace, and the Bible says it was trembling violently and chugging out smoke and flames. And then on top of all that, God speaks audibly so that all can hear. God gives the Ten Commandments, and it says that after that, after this encounter with God, the people run up to Moses and they beg Moses, Moses, please don't let God talk to us anymore. If he needs to say anything more, can you please go up the mountain and just talk to him by yourself? That would be a lot easier on us because they are so frightened to deal with God directly. Moses agrees, but he tells them. He says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Huh. Don't be afraid. God just want to make sure you'd be afraid of him. <laughs> Maybe it's more like, don't be, don't be terrorized, but realize whom you are dealing with, and it'll make a big difference in how you relate to him from now on. Too often, we forget whom we're dealing with. God is not just some advisor, not just a friend who's there when you need him. God is not just our helper and our counselor. First and foremost, he is God, creator and destroyer of the heavens and the earth, the greatest power, the highest standard, the only one who is holy, who is perfect. What is he worthy of? What is he not worthy of? The Bible says he's worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor, all power. When you are in his presence, kneeling, bowing, falling flat on your face, those are appropriate. When you're not in his presence, he still holds your life in his hands. You can contribute nothing to his worth. He can contribute everything to your worth. And that's a barrier for people. We want perfect love, but nobody sits around saying, I want to submit to an almighty God. <laughs> we want a friend, not a boss. We want an equal, not the universe's greatest power differential. We want a savior, but not a Lord. And so the fact that God is a God to be feared becomes a stumbling block for us. The second stumbling block we face in building a real relationship with the real God is that we are comfortable with a God who is righteous and good, but not with a God who defines righteous and good. You see, we like God in theory, just not always in practice. I mean, really, just think about it. We'll take some easy examples. What do you love about God? What's your favorite thing about God. I mean, I'll bet you whatever it is, God does it differently than you would have. I mean, are you a fan of his forgiveness, maybe? I mean, that's a great gift that God gives to us. Without God's forgiveness, where would we be? But I will bet you that God has forgiven people that you and I never would have. I mean, we love his forgiveness, but we draw the line somewhere. Well, God does too. God draws a line somewhere too, but he draws it in a different place than we do. And I bet you he has forgiven people and acts 
that I would have punished who does it differently than I would. Okay, well, maybe you're a big fan of God's love. The same thing applies. God loves people that you and I have already hated. God lavishes gifts on people that I would be stingy to. God blesses people who hate him. Oh, and this. God loves you so much that he sent his son to his death. Yeah, pretty sure you and I, we would do things a little differently. We like God in theory, but in practice, we would do a lot of things differently. And I think we're largely okay with that dynamic. I mean, we just kind of see it as, well, you know, he loves, I love, we do a little differently, not a big deal. But those were the easier examples. I think the rubber really hits the road when we start talking about what is right, what is good, what should happen, what shouldn't. You see, because each one of us has some pretty deeply ingrained thoughts about what is right and what is wrong, and likely even about what is good and what is evil. Now, sometimes we may put those in separate categories. Sometimes we may just kind of lump them all together. But regardless, we each hold in our hearts these deep convictions about the shoulds and the should-nots of life the way things are supposed to be and the way things never should be. Well, God does too. God does too. The scriptures specifically spell it out for us. He's not a neutral kind of guy. God is good. God is righteous. It's not just that he's done good things and not just that he's made right decisions. The Bible says, no, he is good and he is righteous all the time and in all ways. And at first that sounds, well, that sounds really great. That sounds comforting. I can count on God to always be good, always be right? Wow. He is certainly the only one I can say that about. And yes, if I could choose my own customizable, personalized God, and there was a menu option, would you like your God to always do good? I would select yes. And there's another one that said, would you like your God to be the perfect example of righteousness? Yes, again, I would choose those things. So great theory about God. But it gets more interesting, though, because here's what God does with his goodness. Here's what God does with his righteousness, where all of a sudden we see he might be different than we are. First of all, God tells us that his definitions of good and right are the only ones. Only God's righteousness is true. Only God is truly good. I mean, you might have your understanding. I might, not have, I might have mine. But God tells us these are not matters of opinion. Jesus himself even questioned those who called him good. And he basically told them, he said, are you really sure you want to do this? You want to call me good? If so, I want you to know that you are admitting that I come from God. Because no one is good except God alone. Is that what you're saying? Likewise, righteousness in the Bible, it is something that people can possess, but only insofar as they line up with God's will. Those who put their trust in God are called righteous. And God is the one who does the crediting of righteousness to people. They're viewed as his sole property. Righteousness is his to give out, Defining what good even means is territory that belongs to him alone. 
well, not only are good and right the exclusive property of God, but then we'll see what he does with it. He says he's going to hold the entire world accountable to his standards. Whoa. Now that is, that is cranking things up a little bit, isn't it? Quite a bit, actually. Again, this is where we see that God is, he's not in the business of just being a swell guy. I mean, you know, a swell guy might say, hey, I know all of the good things to do in life. I know all the right things to do in life, and I've written it all down for you, and I've got it in a manual for you. So you want to live a, you know, a life that's a little bit better on you? Here's the manual, better read and heed. You don't want to? Hey, it's up to you. But see, God's not just an advice columnist or some wise old guru that, you know, hey, I'm sitting up here on a mountain. If you guys want to know something smart, come and ask me. It's here again that he shows that role, that role that is so blatantly uncomfortable for us at times. It's here that he asserts, you want to know what role I'm going to play? I'm going to play the role of God. The word of God calls him the righteous judge of the living and the dead. And it teaches us that all the people who have gone before us, all those who live alongside us, all those who will come after us are set in front of the one who truly defines what right is, what good is. And we will all be called to the account, every one of us judged by his standards, by his definitions. He's not just going to let bygones be bygones. Hey, you know, I'm going to judge you by your standards and, you know, you by yours and you by yours. He's going to be God. And no matter how we define right and wrong, we're going to be judged based on his definitions. But it doesn't end there. God takes things one step further. There will be a reckoning a settling of accounts. See, the, God, the judgment that God holds is not just a show. It's the most real reality that almost none of us ever truly believe we'd ever see. And that reality that God places before us is that every sin, every wrong, every evil will meet its penalty, every single one. It's not just going to be identified, well, here's what I would have done with your life, Here's what you did. Notice the difference. Okay. No. Once identified, every wrong will be dealt with. And this is where the scriptures describe some things that don't make us comfortable. They tell us of God's destruction of the earth. They tell us of people meeting their earthly deaths by God's hand. They tell us of a place of torment and separation from God in the afterlife. And they don't sugarcoat it. They don't say, sorry to say this, uh, maybe it'll be better than this. No, they just say, nothing good awaits. Nothing good awaits those who are judged to be unrighteous. Now, on the one hand, use your imagination with me, if you will, this could sound like some marvelous news. How? Because in one sense, this is some powerful stuff. This is God saying, he's going to take care of business. This is God saying, I've got it. 
I mean, how much time do we spend in our lives fretting about whether or not we've been treated fairly or whether or not someone else will ever have to pay for the hurt and damage that they've caused to so many people, whether or not that person who cheated to get ahead is ever going to reap the benefits of what they've done? How often do we spend thinking about those things and fretting over those things, but we don't need to? The view the scriptures give us is that God's got it covered that we don't need to be God, that we don't need to rule out the judgment that God can take care of. It says that he sees everything, and it says that every wrong will be addressed. It says that every crime is sentenced. No one's out of his grasp. Nobody gets a free pass. Justice will be done. Well, that's not too bad. But on the other hand, maybe it's this hand. On the other hand, This is one of the hardest things for us to understand about God. Because first of all, we go way back here and we don't even necessarily agree with God about what right and wrong are. I mean, we've got some pretty strong ideas about what should be allowed, what shouldn't be allowed, what parts of the Bible we like, what ones we don't, uh, why we should be considered a special case. We all have those ideas, not just some of us. But secondly, even if we actually did agree on everything, lockstep, 100%. We all agree on what right and wrong was. We'll also find out that we have very different ideas about what to do about it. What would be good to do about it? I mean, many of us would probably do things differently. I mean, some people question whether or not God is good when he takes life, when he destroys things, when he judges I've talked to several people that have really serious issues with hell. The idea that some people will be permanently separated from God, that's not a pleasant idea. And in fact, these people are so opposed to that idea, it's their main reason that they don't want to follow Jesus Christ. And God knows this. He knows the offense that we take to his definition of right and wrong. And he still hasn't changed his mind. He's promised us. He said that in him, all creation will find its reckoning. Everything will be called to his account. And so those two stumbling blocks, they leave some of us in quite a conundrum. God's got good press, right? I mean, he's a God of love. He's a God who upholds the standards of goodness and righteousness. Who wouldn't want to be excited about that? But amidst these incredible truths of his, many of us struggle with, well, the fact that God's not a little more like us. Why isn't God more like us? Instead, he's a God to be feared. And he's a God who defines what right and wrong are, what good and evil are for everyone, whether or not they agree with him. So where does that leave us? Here today. Well, we're here to explore who God is, right? But we're not just here for that, for the sake of filling our heads with more knowledge, so that, but we're here so that we can figure out how to respond to him, how to grow in relationship with him. So what you do next might depend on where you're at right now. So I'll leave you with three challenges to consider before you go, and you can pick zero to three of them to follow if you'd like. First, I'll I'll challenge you 
to deal with the God who really is. I started this message by stating that I think more and more people are making up a God of their own. Folks, that doesn't work. If I can decide who God is going to be, wouldn't that make me God? Or at least his equal? But the God of the Bible is very clear. He has no equal and there is no other. And by the way, we make lousy gods. So, and this is my plea even to you if you are a longtime Christian, explore the God who really is. Find the truth about him in his word. And then the test of an honest faith journey comes when you discover something true that rubs you the wrong way. The test of an honest faith journey comes when you discover something true that rubs you the wrong way. Will you adjust to God's reality or will you create your own? That's the test. Secondly, I want to challenge you to examine how you relate to God. Even though we call him God, so many of us still want to relate to him like a peer or a subordinate even. We've got expectations for him, but he better not have any expectations for us. And if we're not careful, we'll find that's not just a temptation, but it'll become the way that we relate to God. Rather, God's word charges us over and over again to fear the Lord. Revere him, be in awe of him, worship him with the gravity that he is due. He is mighty, he's powerful, he's infinite, and we should relate to him accordingly. And you want to know a secret? This isn't just a duty that God has called us to do and just put up with it. This is a way that God can bless us. The Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. You know all those really important things in life when you, know, you find yourself somewhere and you're like, man, I wish I would have made better choices. Man, it would have been nice if I didn't screw my life up. Huh, would have been great if I had a better understanding how the word really works before I did that. The Bible says that starts with the appropriate reverence and awe for God. It starts with saying, God, I'm gonna put you in this place where you belong in my life. And from that will flow wisdom and knowledge. And finally, if you haven't already, I want to challenge you to accept the good news that God has for you about the reckoning. You see, it may be one of the hardest things for people to accept about God that he will actually require justice for every wrong ever done, but it's also something that draws us straight into the most beautiful way that God has ever showed his love for us. See, because God has declared that every sinner, anyone that sins, will be judged. And that just means people, every single one of us. Every one of us will be judged. But he gives us a role in that process that we couldn't have earned for ourselves. He says, I'm going to give you a choice to make. The reckoning can either take place on your own merits at the end of this present age. If you'd like that, that's available to you. Or that reckoning can take place on the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. 
Now, Jesus was already judged. It's already done. It's already completed. He was judged while he carried the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, and he wasn't found lacking. He was found worthy. He was welcomed into life. He was welcomed into resurrection. He was welcomed into glory. And again, this is different than anything you and I would have thought of. It probably doesn't make total sense to us, probably not what we would have done, but God has given us a choice that somehow we can either live however we want and face the reckoning on our own merits, or we can live for Jesus, and his merit will count for us. In Jesus' very own words, he says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death 